The deal that happened yesterday, sorry I'm not wearing my mask, but I wanted to show whoever it was that you're not going to take away my smile, and uh, I'm going to keep on going. Sometimes, you know, humanity is a beautiful thing. Saw a bit of that yesterday. That's Bubba Wallace there. He finished 14th uh, in Talladega at that NASCAR race yesterday, but not before a beautiful show, a display of unity. Uh, All the other drivers of the other cars and their pit crews walking with him uh, down the track. It was beautiful. Uh, Let's talk more, though, about the kind of ugly events that led to that beautiful moment and other stories from sports. Joining us now is Christian O'Mell, the uh, sports show host at CGOB. Good morning, Christian. Morning, Sammy. That was pretty emotional, wasn't it? Absolutely, and I did not peg NASCAR as being the sport that would have this this <laughs> unifying moment in this time that we're in right now. Obviously, there isn't a lot of other sports going on, but this is a sport that forever has been more or less associated with the South. It's a very white sport. The fact that Bubba Wallace is the only black driver speaks to that. And there's not a, hist- a long history of black drivers in NASCAR as well. And just a couple of weeks ago, the Confederate flag was still cool at tracks, and Bubba said, I don't like that. And NASCAR acted very swiftly, so they deserve a lot of praise through this. Obviously, I think it's easier to, to ban something when fans aren't in the stands. We'll see what happens once they do have races with fans in the stands again in the South. But I think NASCAR deserves a lot of praise for how they've yeah. handled it. And the thing that strikes me the most is that it's likely that uh, whoever put the noose in his garage stall was in that crew walking behind him yesterday. Well, you know, I was Um, thinking Christian that that person who did that must've been in a full on panic mode yesterday because it blew up. It is a huge story. I'm sure they're going to try to get to the bottom of who did that. And somebody who thought it was probably a stupid prank is in for a lot of trouble. Absolutely. And they'll get kicked out of the sport forever. The FBI is involved in this. If people are wondering why they haven't come out, NASCAR hasn't come out with, oh, we have the camera footage, here it is. It's because the FBI is doing it, and they're going to do their due process. So it might take longer than we would hope to get an answer, but I would I would expect the NASCAR will, will learn who it was, probably one person, and then that person will be banned for life from the sport. No kidding. All right, let's talk about hockey, of course, because we are a hockey country. Uh, the mm-hmm. Hub City decision, do you think that's coming this week? Sounds like it. Sounds like the NHL is moving towards that. Uh, they've notified a few cities that they're out of the running, seeing some reporting on that. I think if you're in Vancouver, uh, it's quite likely you're going to be a hub city because we've seen what's happening in the States. Personally, I think if the NHL does this, I don't think it hurts to have both of them in Canada. I know that Vegas cases are rising, though they have so many hotels there. I think it wouldn't be too hard to really have yourself a strict bubble, though ice space isn't exactly premium. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Premium in, in Vegas, but yeah, Vancouver, I would, I would say it's probably 80% at least that Vancouver is going to get one. Now, if you're a hockey fan of Vancouver, that doesn't really mean anything because you're not going to get no. to go to the games. If you, you, you're not going to be able to <laughs> right. talk to any of the athletes. So it's kind of a, Oh, it's so close, but we can't touch it kind of thing. But It'd still be, I guess, pretty cool to have it in your city, wouldn't it? it, it absolutely. I, I'm a big fan of having that here. Although I got to say, kudos to uh, Premier Jason Kenney over in Alberta there. He is lobbying hard for Edmonton yes. to be chosen. He's trying very hard. Yeah, the video yesterday put out by his government, it was kind of curious because it showed all of Alberta without Edmonton in it, really. <laughs> and it's trying to sell families on all the stuff that you can do that. It, You're not it, allowed to do like right a, now. Yeah, it was kind of confusing, but I I can't fault him trying to get Edmonton into the mix. 
Right. But you think really at this point, is it looking, I heard even ESPN, there was one story where they were saying, you know, Vancouver and Toronto make sense. Yeah, I, I understand the idea that you want to have an East and a West because of TV reasons. Uh, if you have Edmonton and Vancouver or Vegas in Vancouver, then it's it's Edmonton's in Mountain, but then Vegas and Vancouver are both Pacific time zones. So for TV purposes, it might be a little more awkward. But I think from an NHL's point of view, that's almost a beggars can't be choosers situation. You pick the two cities that you think you can do it best in, and if the TV times are yeah. weird, then they're going to be weird because you just want to do it as safe as possible. Southern Ontario still dealing with a lot of cases. Uh, Vegas is too, uh, but I think you can probably still do the bubble in Toronto. I just think that, uh, Vancouver is is probably the best place. And then they seem to be pretty set on Vegas, but they that do. can obviously change day by day. They certainly do seem set on Vegas. All right, Christian, thank you. All right, no problem. That's Christian Amal, CJOB Sports Show host, talking about a couple of sports-related stories. If you didn't see the video yesterday uh, of Bubba Wallace and all the players uh, before the race, absolutely check that out. It is really quite moving. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, big conferences to talk about important topics just aren't what they used to be. But the big questions don't go away just because experts can't get together to talk about them. Uh, For instance, there's this two-day online summit that is kicking off today, and it aims to explore innovative climate change solutions designed for a post-COVID-19 world. Now, that sounds to me pretty challenging. Uh, The Climate Solutions Innovation Series is hosted by the Pacific Institute for Climate Solutions and Simon Fraser University's Sustainability Office. Now, they're free webinars, so they're open to the public, and they will feature all sorts of engaging discussions with local experts and an opportunity for participants to actually pose their own questions, too, to the speakers. So one of those experts is actually with us right now to talk more about this. It is Dr. Zafar Adil, Executive Director of the Pacific Water Research Center. Dr. Adil, thanks for joining us. Hi, good morning, Simi. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. This must be quite challenging these days to talk about these kinds of issues in the right forum. Well, yes, there are some practical challenges in how these conversations are taking place, and I think we're learning quite fast. But I think uh, also at the same time, we're learning that the kind of challenges that we've seen with the pandemic or perhaps an earliest warning for how things might get when uh, climate change-related impacts start hitting our communities. Yeah, How has the pandemic changed your area or influenced your area of research? Well, there have been some practical challenges in terms of uh, our researchers going out to the communities and going out to the field and, uh, you know, collecting information And as we know, there are still some restrictions in place and how those uh, activities take place. There's also the element of being able to gather and uh, conduct dialogue. And and as we were talking about earlier, that has also changed quite significantly. And in fact, in some ways, it has improved because now we are able to connect with our colleagues across the world when there is Uh, when we can find the right time where everyone is awake at the same time. Um, But, uh, you know, talking specifically about uh, the comparison between climate change and pandemics, I was thinking in my mind, it's it's sort of like uh, Batman versus Superman, if you're a superhero. (laughs) uh, Good analogy, yes. uh, So, but the, the idea is that 
the two are quite similar in the kind of timescales in which they're unfolding in terms of kind of impacts they've caused on the economy, how they've disrupted lives, and eventually how we will adapt to both of, both of them. Right. And so your area is in particular uh, effectively managing water resources, right, to, to build more resilient urban communities. How do we do that? So there's a whole range of options which uh, relate to, to better utilization of spaces around us. Uh, and my own particular interest is around uh, using nature-based solutions and what we call green infrastructure as a way of better managing water. But it actually gives us quite a few other benefits, which in the current circumstances relate also to responding to um, pandemic-related impacts. So, for example, um, if we create more green spaces and spaces that are friendly to people who would like to walk around, we know that this is exactly the kind of uh, response we need. Uh, It also relates to uh, better water consumption. So we know, for example, one of the key responses to the pandemic is hand washing, and that requires uh, access to safe water. Now, we are very fortunate here in the Metro Vancouver area that we do have uh, access to safe, high-quality water, but that's not true across the world. So that linkage between safe water and uh, your personal hygiene and eventually good health are are very closely highlighted through this current uh, situation. And then there are secondary type of solutions also where you can think of... uh, better water managing, leading to uh, growing urban foods. So we're growing our, our produce more uh, at a local scale. So you talked about the value of green spaces there. Do you think if there's one thing the pandemic has taught us, I feel, it is the value of the green spaces in our communities because that sometimes that's all people have, right, when they're not allowed to venture very far from their homes. Absolutely. And, and I think... Uh, if you can tie that into improving uh, your water management, your stormwater management. Uh, so, for example, one of the ideas that is being explored in the Metro Vancouver area is to have these rooftop gardens or, uh, you know, yeah. uh, green roofs, as we call them, that can help at, at the same time provide green space, maybe even uh, have some produce coming out of it. But then at, this, at the other hand, it's also helping uh, with stormwater management and uh, reducing the, the stress on, uh, on our uh, stormwater drainage systems. And we know that as climate change gets worse, mm-hmm. uh, some of those extreme rain systems are also going to increase in frequency. So it, it, it gives you uh, sort of a double bang for the buck. Sounds like it's going to be a fascinating summit. Uh, Dr. Adil, thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. That is Dr. Zafar Adil, Executive Director of the Pacific Water Research Center. He's one of the experts that's going to be speaking at this two-day online summit that's kicking off today. It's called the Climate Solutions Innovation Series. If you just Google that, you'll find out more info. And in fact, you can just check it out online if you would like to. I, there lots of room for participants to even pose their own questions to some of the speakers like Dr. Adil. So for more information, just check that out. It's the Climate Solutions Innovation Series. This is Mornings with Simi.
As we know, COVID-19 has affected everything, right? Even the television industry. Used to be that in the spring, that's when executives went to Hollywood and shopped for all those new shows to air on their networks. Well, this year, there was none of that. So how did the people in charge decide what you are going to be watching this fall? Well, they had to make their choices. Let's find out how they did that. Joining us now is Troy Reeb, Executive Vice President of Broadcast Networks, right here at Chorus Entertainment. Good morning, Troy. Good morning, Simi. This must have been tough trying to figure out. How did, how did you guys do this? How did you even look at the different shows that were available? Well, it's tough when you can't go down to Hollywood and get wined and dined oh, by um, you know, studio executives trying to sell you shows. Um, <laughs> you actually have to watch the shows and figure out which ones are the best. And, um, and, and of course, you know, we've seen these huge spikes in audiences as, uh, you know, as COVID rolled out. People are at home. What are they going to do? They're watching a lot of television. Um, but at the same time, productions are getting shut down in Hollywood, in Vancouver, and Toronto. So the supply of new shows isn't as rich as it uh, as it otherwise might be. So it's taken some really um, you know uh, tough looking, uh, and uh, and you have to place your bets on what's uh, what's going to roll out this fall. But we're pretty confident we've we've gotten a really good schedule. Yeah, I'm excited about that because I love uh, crime investigative shows, and you've got one of the best coming to Global. Uh, yeah, thank you. I think the, um, we've actually brought 48 hours from, uh, CBS, uh, to add to the global schedule, partly because we wanted to pair it up with, uh, true crime has become such a big thing over the last number of years. We've seen the success of the Crime Beat podcast, uh, here in Canada, which Mm -hmm. was a global news product. Uh, and we've actually turned that very successful podcast into a TV show, which runs on Saturday nights. And now we're going to pair it with the best of the U.S. true crime shows, uh, which is 48 hours. So that's Saturday nights. What else can people expect to see this fall? Well, one of the ones we're really excited about on Global is uh, a new Monday night show called Next. And um, and this comes from Fox, and it is uh, a really kind of frightening examination of what happens when artificial intelligence becomes too intelligent. And, um, you know, it's those devices in your homes that we're all suspicious about when you're talking to them. Uh, how much are they really listening? And, and I think it all sets up when you see, you know, one clip of... Uh, the child stops talking to the, you know, the Siri type device and it starts talking to him and asking him questions about what it's like to be human. And, and this rolls out as a mystery. Um, uh, and it's, uh, and it's really quite frightening. Uh, Ooh. and, uh, so that's coming this fall on Mondays. I like that. Uh, it must be so competitive, right? Cause you're also competing with like streaming services as well for putting product on the air. Yeah, it's not like the old days when no. the only competitors were the other Canadian networks that were uh, looking to buy shows. Now you're bidding up against these huge multinational giants as well as everyone's looking to get new product for the fall. And one of the things that COVID has done because production has been shut down um, in many places is it's caused us to look further afield. And we found some really neat new dramas. Um, you know, there's one that is a... Uh, U.S., British, Italian co-production called Devils. It's going to be coming to showcase this fall. Uh, and it stars Patrick Dempsey as a, as an investment banker. And it's, and it's really kind of a rip from the headline story about how these very few, very powerful investment bankers can manipulate the markets, um, you know, and crash a currency. Uh, and, um, and they truly are devils and it's fascinating to watch. So when is all this going to get rolled out? When can people start expecting to see this? Well, our big cable networks like Showcase and W Network and History, as well as our lifestyle networks like HGTV and Food, those are all going to be at their prime in September as usual. All of the big new premieres are going to be at that time. 
Um, partly because, you know, the lifestyle production schedule isn't as intense as the drama production schedule, and partly because our drama networks, like W and Showcase, have been filled up with really fantastic international content. Um, and then Global uh, will likely be delayed a little bit, a few weeks. Ordinarily, you'd be premiering kind of the end of September, mm-hmm. all of your biggest premieres. Those will likely be pushed back a couple of weeks, um, probably closer to around the U.S. election. Um, uh, but we're still going to have lots of great new content, and, and including some of our biggest Canadian premieres, like uh, the new season of Private Eyes, as well as Departure, which is one we're really excited about. It's a Canadian co-pro with, uh, with the British, and it stars Christopher Plummer, you oh. can't get any better than that Yeah, as an aircraft investigator investigating a, a plane crash over the Atlantic. I love it. All right, Troy, thank you. Uh, thank you so much. Lots to look forward to on Global and all the different networks tonight. That is Troy Reeb, our Executive Vice President of Broadcast Networks at Chorus Entertainment. We're all looking for new shows to watch, right? We've pretty much probably tapped out everything that is available to us right now. So yeah, this fall, I think many people will be looking for new shows to watch and you're going to find them for sure. This is Mornings with Simi. So our border with the United States, our land border anyway, remains mostly closed. And it looks like it's going to be that way until at least towards the end of July at this point. Here in BC, we did things a little bit differently, where the provincial government stepped in to take over some of those border control issues. But we learned this week that they're actually now going to be stepping back. We wanted to find out why that is. So joining us now to talk more about uh, border security and some other issues, uh, we have Public Safety Minister Mike Farnworth with us. Good morning. Good morning. So why the decision now? Like, do we feel that things have changed at the border? Uh, no, the, uh, our issues are, are still there. Uh, but what has happened is the federal government has now uh, been able to marshal uh, fully the resources required to do what we were doing. Uh, and they're being able to do that to, uh, to, to the province's satisfaction. So when this started, and the issue, as you know, we raised here in British Columbia with the federal government was we were very concerned about the border and people coming back into into British Columbia and the need to ensure, you know, that quarantine plans are in place, that people had a proper plan for self-isolation. So we worked with the federal government and we put in it, we put in what was required first and then the federal government has been uh, adding its resources to the point now where we're going, okay, federal, the border is a federal responsibility. They're doing uh, what's required and so we're able to pull back the provincial resources that we had put in place. How big of an effort was that? I remember reading about just how many, you know, provincial employees that had been kind of roped into this. It was a huge effort, and it really was, I think, a testament to the professionalism and uh, of, our, of our public service in this province. Uh, we had people from cross ministries, uh, transportation, public safety, uh, health, tour- tourism, you name it, literally all, all ministries in government um, were working at the border to ensure that uh, when people were coming back to Canada, uh, that they had a, a self-isolation plan in place, um, that they were you know, going to follow that. Um, I can tell you that uh, up until last week, more than uh, 33,000 people uh, landed, came through at YBR, uh, almost 40,000 at land crossing. Each one of those uh, were checked to ensure that they had a proper plan. If they didn't, they were given help to develop it. Uh, and if, they, if, if that wasn't there, then they were, they were placed in, uh, in isolation in, uh, for 14 days. Um, and 
Subsequent to that, follow-up took place, more than 50,000 follow-up calls to make sure that people were, in fact, um, following their plan, and, and the vast majority, the overwhelming majority were. And there were, for those that, where there were questions, there, were, uh, there was enforcement action, so um, individual follow-ups took place. Do we know how many people did have to go to a hotel as designated by the provincial government? Um, it was just, I think it was around 150 somewhat um, at the end had to go to, uh, to, uh, to a hotel to manage accommodation. Um, and the overwhelming number, uh, you know, required just uh, follow-up calls. And uh, um, it was amazing to see that people, you know, I was down there um, and people were, uh, people were very receptive. They were very pleased to see what was happening at the border. So are you confident then with how the border situation is being handled? Because, you know, we've been hearing these stories about American tourists showing up in places like Banff and then getting tickets from the RCMP. Mm-hmm. Are you at all concerned about those stories? Those, uh, those do occur, uh, and they're part of, you know, there is that loophole, which is the agreement that um, we have or that the federal government has with the United States uh, when it came to closing the border down, which was if people were traveling to Alaska, uh, they could go through, but of course, when they do that, they're supposed to be going straight, uh, straight there. They're not supposed to be taking, you know, oh, let's just detour to Tofino or let's stop off in Banff. Um, and the fact that tickets have been being issued uh, indicates to us that uh, you know the RCMP, for example, are taking are taking that seriously. Um, it's not a huge number, but uh, certainly it's something that uh, we've been concerned about. But uh, overall, uh, in terms of the border itself. Um, We've been very pleased uh, in terms of the response we've had, and uh, we're confident enough now that the, uh, that the people the feds have in place are, are doing the job uh, in the way that we uh, expect it to be done. Now, you were also in the news, too. We heard you responding to the Mullen report, which is something that we had been waiting for. This has to do with what's been going on at the legislature. Uh, when do you think that might be made more available to the public? Uh, well, it's been received by uh, by LAMSI, but it is which is a legislative assembly management committee. But we have yet to uh, to to discuss um, uh, that report. Um, as you know, um, we've been focused very much with getting the uh, the the legislature ready to be able to have um, you know the the hybrid the virtual uh, in person session that started yesterday. And that's taken a significant uh, amount of work uh, to get to get to that point. So the the report has been received by LAMC, and we will be dealing with it in due course. Now, I understand that also there was some talk in the report about kind of changing the way legislature security works as well. Will that will that be discussed? Well, that's I know that that, that is in the report. Um, and as I said, when we uh, when we get uh, when we're able to deal with that report. Uh, discuss it. Uh, all party members uh, on, uh, are, on, are on the LAMSI committee. Uh, then we'll be able to review what's in it and, and if there's any decisions or actions to be taken, then, then that would happen at that time. Okay, so when it comes to the border, then I take it things are going to be monitored, but for now, you think things are fine? Well, yeah, no, the, um, the feds have got uh, their personnel in place. Uh, they're doing the, uh, the, the procedures and the policies uh, that the province uh, had, had been doing. Uh, doing the checks, uh, ensuring that if people don't have the uh, the proper uh, self isolation plan that uh, that either one is developed uh, there at uh, at the uh, the border or they're placed in uh, in uh, in, uh, in accommodation uh, for 14 days, and so we are we are now 
uh, confident that that what's being done uh, is is appropriate and is in line with what the province was doing when we were doing it. It's interesting, though, how vigilant people are, though, isn't it? Like when you think about they're monitoring those license plates and they want to know what are people doing here. Uh, What do you say to people who are concerned about that when they see these license plates and think, well, that person's not supposed to be here? Well, you know, and and it says that, uh, and I think that's been one of the reasons why we have been as successful as we have been here in British Columbia, is that people have taken, um, you know, the instructions of, uh, of Bonnie Henry to heart. They have recognized that we need to maintain social distancing, and so there are some questions. But obviously, as we now are moving into, you know, to, to phase two, and hopefully um, in the near future into phase three, as, as we're going to, as we're able to to move around uh, more and to be able to to uh, to travel uh, more within British Columbia, um, then you know people realize, you know, that that that, that it is okay. But the reality is this. Those travel bans and restrictions are in place at the border. They will be, you know, uh, at least until the uh, the end of July. Uh, and people should have confidence that uh, um, that people coming back are being still being checked. Uh, if they're required to be put in isolation, uh, quarantine, they're going to be quarantined for 14 days. They don't have a plan, but those things are 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 happening and taking place. All right, Minister Farnworth, thank you. My pleasure. That is Mike Farnworth, Public Safety Minister, talking about the changes happening in border security uh, this week. B.C. is no longer looking after that. They have now reverted to allowing the federal government to look after all of that screening. And remember, a lot of pressure from B.C. on the federal government saying they didn't feel enough was being done. So they did put their own uh, provincial employees in place for that. And that changed this week. If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Not one, not two, but three bills were tabled by Attorney General David Eby yesterday in the legislature, and one of them at least could set the stage for changing how you renew your ICBC insurance. So let's find out what's going on with that and more. Joining us now is David Eby, the Attorney General. Thanks for being here. Good morning. So what is this set up then? What is this going to change for us? Uh, well, there were, as you note, three bills uh, yesterday. Uh, the one that may be of particular interest to listeners is uh, related to the decals on license plates. Um, we have been, uh, through ICBC, delivering uh, uh, renewals by email and by phone during the pandemic. It's been working very well. Uh, but one of the issues that was identified is uh, delivery of the decals and, uh, and certainly raised those questions about uh, is the deco even necessary? There are many jurisdictions that don't use this approach. Uh, so one of the bills uh, creates the ability for government to set a regulation that could either uh, extend the period that decals are valid for or eliminate them entirely. And it will set the stage for us to talk with law enforcement about uh, the impacts on them or other agencies that may depend on the decal for one reason or the other so that we can uh, make sure there are no unintended consequences of getting rid of it. That's a big shift. Um, do you foresee that happening then? Is that the path we're going down? Um, I hope so. You know, any uh, unnecessary expense in relation to ICBC and hassle for British Columbians, if we can avoid it, I think we should. Um, and so uh, it's also important to recognize that, you know, there may be some somebody, police officers, others, uh, uh, you know, uh, BC ferries when they're seeing cars lined up to make sure that the vehicles are uh, uh, properly insured before they come onto the ferry. Who knows? Um, we just want to make sure that if there is a change like this, that it doesn't have an impact uh, in a way that we don't expect and, if, and uh, to make sure that uh, we address and mitigate any of the problems that might be caused. And if we, if we can do it, um, it uh, would be really positive for the existing system of phone and email renewals, but also 
for uh, movement to online. So this is what's been fascinating to me about the pandemic situation is that we're doing things that before would have taken forever and much discussion and it might not have happened. But this is one of them, I feel like, and a lot of the changes when it comes to liquor laws in this province as well is another. Do you foresee these things as being permanent changes, particularly when it comes to those liquor changes? Um, So I think it's a very interesting uh, experiment that's taking place. uh, And one, I agree that, uh, you know, these changes, whether it's the uh, email and phone renewals at ICBC or it's the extended patios uh, for liquor, the delivery of liquor with food or the wholesale price for liquor. I mean, these are changes that would have taken extended periods uh, to deliver, but happened very quickly. Um, and uh, the, I guess the answer is we'll see what the impacts are. <laughs> the, uh, in terms of the wholesale price for liquor, it's a temporary change, uh, but there will be a review in, uh, in March of next year when we'll look at what the financial impacts were on government and what the impacts were to support the hospitality industry. Um, and uh, we'll look at how the uh, delivery of alcohol went uh, with food uh, to support restaurants, but not only that for convenience for British Columbians, whether there were any issues with that. I think it's been very positive when you look at these changes, and I am very uh, pleased with how they are rolling out, and I think they've made a real difference for hospitality and for British Columbians, and uh, and I'm hopeful that we can keep as many as possible. Right. There's also the latest one, I guess, which is also allowing restaurants to buy from private retailers and not necessarily the government. Yeah, that was a recommendation pre-COVID from the Business Technical Advisory Panel on on products that uh, there are specialty products and and they have to be ordered in uh, for the LDB. They're called non-stock wholesale, and you've got to buy a case of them if you want to get it. Uh, if you're a bar or a restaurant, but I mean, some of these specialty ingredients you just use a tiny amount in a cocktail or something like like that. You don't want a whole case of it. So we've been uh, working with industry and starting the policy work of uh, of that shift to allow uh, bars and restaurants to buy those products from. Uh, uh, private stores. Um, it would be a significant shift, uh, just like the wholesale price shift was, but the policy work is ongoing on that. Right. It's just, you can't take that stuff away though. Like even delivery, all these things that I can order now online and get liquor delivered to the house, people don't want that taken away. No, I think that's true. And, and pre-pandemic, I mean, people may not realize this, but you could still get booze delivered to your house. Uh, under uh, BC's laws, but uh, the convenience of having it delivered from the restaurant you're ordering from and uh, and for them to be able to put together a package with a bottle of wine that goes with the food they're selling you, um, I think uh, is working for a lot of British Columbians and for uh, restaurants that we know are struggling as a result of the pandemic. So, you know, I feel really positive about these changes that have been made. Um, you know, there's been a lot of understanding from people who are concerned about uh, the public health impacts, obviously, of increasing access to alcohol. And, mm-hmm. and so uh, we will hear from them about uh, what the impacts have been on the ground in terms of uh, consumption, hospitalization and so on. But um, but I think it's been really positive. And, and so uh, the, I, I've heard it described that COVID uh, melts red tape on contact. And uh, I thought that was a very good description <laughs> of, uh, of what we're seeing. It's, uh, it's just a willingness of a bunch of stakeholders to put yeah. the differences aside. The wholesale price was a great example where, uh, you know, even industries that uh, would be uh, negatively affected, the BC Wine Institute uh, had the ability to deliver wine to restaurants at a reduced cost. It gave them a bit of an advantage, but they agreed to provide wholesale pricing to restaurants and bars, even though it was going to affect them negatively because they understood they want and need restaurants and bars to survive this. Uh, and so it, stakeholders put aside their differences and uh, and work together to solve problems in a way that I've never seen before. And it's it's fascinating to watch and, and an honor to be a part of. It is fascinating to watch. That's on the liquor side of things. But getting back to the ICBC side of things, is there that same kind of cooperation? You talk about you know, renewing insurance online, how do auto insurance brokers feel about that? 
Yeah, that's a great question. And, and another interesting and, uh, and fascinating COVID te- test case of stakeholders working together, uh, the delivery of the uh, phone and email renewals could not have happened without uh, the active partnership of the brokers across the province. And uh, they were willing to uh, say, let's do this thing and, and let's deliver these services to British Columbians in, uh, in a way that's safe for everybody. And, and I think everyone has been pleasantly surprised with how it worked, um, how it worked for the brokers, how it worked for customers. Uh, and I think it uh, has really eased the way for discussions about online ICBC is not going to hire up a, a big uh, phone bank and uh, and uh, expect people to attend at an ICBC office if they have a problem with their online order. We're still going to depend on brokers to provide those back-end services, uh, just like they do with the phone and email right now. Uh, and I think that it really helped the brokers to understand uh, a model that we can go forward with. And, and also, I think uh, for ICBC to do that shift on the fly uh, demonstrated that, uh, that online should be... Um, should be easy to deliver for British Columbians. The big challenge for us, of course, is that we're focused on the changes for May uh, related to enhanced care and providing savings to British Columbians. But uh, for phone and email uh, in the interim, it's been great. And uh, and it will continue for the foreseeable future uh, because there are still many people that... Uh, for various health reasons and otherwise yeah. are very reluctant to be out in public. And very quickly, road tests. When are we going to see that happen? So the uh, commercial testing is all, uh, has all been underway and, uh, and going very well um, as a helpful um, pilot, I guess, for, um, for pleasure use or recreational use of personal vehicles. Uh, and those licenses. The big challenge for us is when you're talking about uh, uh, fifteen to 18,000 tests a month, is adequate personal protective equipment. So um, ICBC is working on that. They've mm. uh, got some limited supplies right now, but not enough to assure continued operation of the of the license system. And I just want to underline for all those folks who are waiting for those yeah. class five license tests to practice and practice and be ready, because if you fail your test, you're going to be waiting a long time for the next test. No kidding. Uh, we'll get most people in for a first run, but uh, but the second run, there'll be a bit of a wait. Oh boy, there's already a wait. There was before all of this happened. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thanks for having me. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, one of the big issues that we have been dealing with as a society in the last little while is cultural appropriation. Happens all the time. And in the music industry in particular, it has been happening for decades. Well, now a group of local dance leaders here in Vancouver have gotten together to address how the dance scene here can better respect and play tribute to Black culture. So joining us now is Nee Engman, an educator and professional dancer, to talk more about this. Nee, thanks for being here. No problem. Thank you for having me. So what does this involve? How do you do that? How do you say, hey, we want to make sure we pay tribute to this? Uh, Well, uh, the first thing we need to do is actually understand how deeply dance is rooted in black culture. Uh, A lot of people speak on dance culture as if it was a separate entity. And what we need to understand is that the reason why dance looks the way it does uh, is because of the culture of the people behind it, from the way they walk, the way they talk, the food they eat, the drinks they drink, the way they interact with each other. Their dance is really... Uh, the expression of what people are living within uh, in their life in that time. Uh, so we really need to get out of the concept of dance being its own separate thing. And once we do understand that, we're able to approach it from a different lens, really. Is this uh, a big seismic change, do you think, that's happening? 100%. Uh, I work at a, a local studio called Harbor Dance Center, uh, and immediately after the meeting, uh, the owner had a meeting with 
uh, her faculty who were there uh, and started really planning to see what type of immediate changes we can make within our studio uh, and help make around the community uh, in order uh, in order to better respect the culture in terms of uh, the way we name our classes, the teachers that are teaching the classes, uh, the way uh, competitions are approached. Uh, it's really a whole system that has been built on cultural appropriation that needs to be dismantled and changed. This is so fascinating to me that this recognition is kind of finally coming. And it's important for students to know that too, right? This is going to be just automatic to them now. 100%. And, that, and that's what's going to be, uh, I guess, the drastic changes for the students, I mean, as well as teachers, but for the students, everything they've known is going to kind of be flipped on its head a little bit. Uh, so they just need to be open to unlearning. Right. That's really what's going to be very important is unlearning what you think you know, so that you're able to uh, ingest the proper information. And again, respect the culture as best as you can. Nee, where can people get more information? Uh, well, they, myself and my panelists, who are uh, Mikhail, uh, Venice, uh, sorry, Mikhail Venomoris, uh, AJ Megaman, and Kevin Frazier, uh, you can find us on social media, um, and myself at, uh, at Prince Nee, uh, Venom is at Venom Alliance, uh, AJ is AJ underscore Megaman, uh, and Kevin Frazier is at Warren the Harbor. Uh, and we're all available. We have a whole lot of information on what we do and what we educate on our social media platforms. Uh, and we also have a website going to be coming up and a whole lot of uh, other social media platforms going to be set up where people can find information to these questions. I love it. I can't wait to hear more about it. Nee, thanks so much for being with us. No problem. Thank you so much for having me. That's Nee Engman, educator and professional dancer, talking about you know making sure that we respect the origins of where dance comes from and the respect that we give there to black culture with that. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, keep an eye out there when you're out and about in Metro Vancouver this week for hundreds of local citizen scientists. They are hoping to find, identify, and document butterflies. This is an effort supported by the David Suzuki Foundation. It's part of ongoing plans that have led up to this week, National Pollinator Week. We wanted to learn more about it. Winnie Ho joins us now, the project lead. Winnie, thanks for being here. Hello, thanks for having me, Zimmy. I love this idea. So how many people are participating in this? At least 86, but then you're really looking at the entire province of British Columbia. Um, anyone who's interested, all you need is to take a photo of a butterfly in a safe environment, uh, not rushing after them, and send that photo to DSF Bindi. Uh, it's a project on iNaturalist. Okay, so this is cool. So what is the point of it then? Why take pictures of butterflies? Um, it's, it has a lot to do with the, the history of the Butterfly Way project. We started in 2017. And the, um, the main reason then is because um, it's a national project. So in uh, our eastern provinces like Toronto and Montreal, um, our colleagues were working, um, doing a lot of work on monarch butterflies because we know that their number has dwindled hugely. Um, we're talking about big percentage. So in Western Canada, we don't have as many Western um, monarch butterfly. Mainly they come from California, but in 2019, we know we ba basically don't have any of them. So it came from this love for monarch butterfly, and we want to know what is causing problems for them. But at the same time, we know that pollinators, including bees, birds, and bats, um, they're all helping humans to produce food. So it becomes this 
um, this big hope that how can human uh, help our pollinators? And so with us, um, we know that a lot of great organizations and people are doing great work on bees. So what we want is to embrace all these pollinators. So our work is called the Butterfly Way Project. Mm -hmm. And we want to find out exactly how they're doing. So in BC, it's a bit more challenging because Monarch is not exactly uh, our main iconic butterfly. But we also want to find out uh, our butterflies in BC in trouble. So this project is crucial because there were no um, real real data that's being collected. So now we have a body of rangers. Um, we have at least 200 who are butterfly way rangers doing the job. Right. And we're also asking British Columbians, if you see a butterfly, take a photo and help us to find out exactly how our butterflies are doing. Okay, so any butterfly mm. or you're looking, it sounds like you're looking in particular for the monarch. So what should people look for? So we're not, in BC, we're not really looking for monarchs. We know that last year, for example, um, all the records show that they did not really fly past uh, the state of Oregon in the United States because usually they would be in California Mm -hmm. for the Western monarchs. And because of the situation and the environment being quite um, restrictive, very dry and very challenging, so they weren't able to make that journey to BC. So what we have, however, in BC, we have lovely butterflies. We have hundreds of species of local BC butterflies. And in the lower mainland, um, I'm sure that a lot of your, your audience would have been seeing um, the yellow tiger swallowtail. Yeah, I just saw so one yesterday. That's funny, yeah. That's wonderful. So I was at Sunset Community Garden in um, on Main Street, South Main, and we were just uh, doing a public engagement event with social distancing, of course. And then this like, huge yellow tiger swallowtail just threw past us. It's almost like challenging us, like, take a photo of me. <laughs> and so it's, it's amazing. And um, the tiger swallowtail is local BC butterfly. It's big. And it's, you cannot, nobody can miss it. It's just beautiful. And this is the time to see them. All, all we need is to be a bit more patient, open our eyes, let them fly past us, because at some point you will be able to take a photo. When you do that, send it to us. Okay, so perfect. Mm-hmm. So what is the website one more time? Uh, so it's, D, it's on iNaturalist. So if you just click on DSF, BIMBY, B-I-M-B-Y, yep. project okay. on iNaturalist. So if you're in doubt, just type also... Uh, on Google, Vancouver Butterfly Way Rangers uh, on David Suzuki Foundation. It will bring you right to uh, to exactly all the information you need. Okay, thank you so much, Winnie. Thank you. So I- I'm waiting for your picture now. <laughs> I didn't take I didn't have my camera with me. I didn't have my phone with me. But I will in the future you for will. sure. Thanks, Winnie. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. That is Winnie Ho, project lead of the Citizen Scientist Project to document butterflies in Metro Vancouver. You heard her. If you see one, take a picture and send it to them. This is Mornings with Simi. So later today, we're going to hear Dr. Bonnie Henry talk about more modeling for COVID-19 in this province. We're going to hear how many more people have contracted COVID-19 and... How many people have died from it? How many people are in the hospital? All important stats. And it's really helped to kind of bring home to a lot of people the importance and significance of the COVID-19 pandemic. But remember, the province right now is in more than one state of emergency. What about the people who die every day from drug overdoses? 
Now, a BC woman who lost her husband to a fatal drug overdose has started a petition asking that Dr. Henry report those deaths daily, like she does for COVID-19. Now, we're having this conversation on a day when there's a drug advocacy protest scheduled for this afternoon. It's the Drug User Liberation Front protest. It's going to start at 2 o'clock. It's going to end on Hastings Street. You'll be hearing more about it uh, throughout the news on the afternoon. And there is an update on the overdose response that is being presented at Vancouver City Council this morning. But to talk more about this, we're joined now by Karen Ward, who's a drug policy advisory advocate. Karen, thanks so much for being with us. Oh, uh, very welcome. Appreciate it. So, Karen, tell me, tell me what it is that you would like Dr. Henry to do. I'll, I would like, um, I very much like, uh, there's a series of things. That, that Dr. Henry could do. I'd like Dr. Henry to talk uh, not to the... I mean, a couple weeks ago, she spoke to the families of drug users and said, check in on people, look out for them, see how they're doing, um, and give them this advice. What I'd like Dr. Henry to do most is, right now is to talk directly to drug users, um, at just direct right at, at people themselves, and, uh, um, and, and let's talk about this situation where we had 170 people uh, in the province, died last last month um, from something preventable. Um, and I've got to say, it's only going to get worse. And I'm pretty sure Dr. Henry knows that. Um, I think the most important thing that she can do, I don't want like, is, is encourage. I guess in her role, the government. You know, we don't need compassion at this point. Um, and I think that it's uh, we don't need symbolic gestures. What we need is justice and, and an equitable distribution of resources. That is, you know, that matches the, the severity of this of this uh, situation. I don't want it to get worse. I don't think anyone does, but it's going to on, on the way this is going. This is not a flattening curve. Do, it's the very so opposite. Do you think then that this um, would really bring it home to more people if every yeah. day you saw somebody standing there talking about the impact of those overdose numbers? Uh, I, that's the thing, Dr. Henry. Has mentioned them. She's done her own her own work. She she produced and, and released last year a report called "Stopping the Harm" about uh, decriminalizing people who use drugs, and presented it to the government in her in her role, and they ignored it completely. Um, I'd like I'd like Dr. Henry to, you know, I'd like the government to to to, to meet the challenge that she's already uh, you know proposed actually, and and I'd like the I'd like the health minister to talk about you know, to recognize and show some compassion, actually. I know that Dr. Henry does. I'd like the Minister of Health and the, and the Premier to, to address drug users and show Do some of think, that. Do you think, Karen, pain. that anything yeah. has changed at all? I mean, one of the things we well, know is that there has been kind of a softening towards the idea of providing a legal supply to help deal with this situation. But do you think this whole COVID-19 uh, pandemic has impacted the drug overdose situation uh, very at much all so, in a yeah. helpful way? Uh, uh, help away? No. I mean, drug overdoses in this province went up 93% last month from compared to the, that this month, uh, 2019. Alberta has stopped, has, they announced yesterday that they're going to not announce or release numbers of how many people died. There's that many. Um, it's a, like, if, if, I'm glad that people's opinions are starting to slowly change, but you're witnessing, you know, you're, 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 you're going along with a massacre at this point, a public execution. This is hundreds of people. These are your own kids. You know, we can, we can debate this all, but, you know, this is a, I mean, this has gone far too, far too long. 
but I mean, what the about that, that legal supply say, issue? We know that there is now bad legal because, supply. You know, there's what, a process for that. Yeah. What about that? Pardon me? What about the I, legal supply issue? We know that there's yeah. now a way, a process through the healthcare system for people to yeah. achieve like a legal safe supply. And uh, the, big, the, the only thing that's stopping people again and again, and the only thing that has delayed this step so long is doctors, actually. And, uh, and they're, you know, they're, well, they're not comfortable. Well, you know what? If, if, they're, if they're, they have a, a professional duty to, to help people not die. And, to, and if they are uncomfortable with that now, they, should, they could be on the street. They could have been on the street months ago prescribing to people and preventing them from going and buying from some, you know, buying random poison. They could have been doing that months ago on this street down here, this concentration of death. And they, they decided not to because they weren't comfortable. If they want to continue doing that. Let's just make sure that we all know that they've decided to let people die like this. It's a choice. So I'd like the Minister of Health, actually, to encourage doctors to step up at this point. I'd like the Minister of Health to do that very much. We'll put that question to him next time we talk to him. But Karen, thank you very much for talking to us today. Thank you. Your time. That's Karen Ward. She's a drug policy advisory and advocate. And as well, as I mentioned earlier, there is a protest happening today. Uh, the Drug User Liberation Front will get underway with their protest at two o'clock. It's going to end on Hastings Street. You'll probably be hearing more about that.